Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for making the extra effort. You know, when they change these clocks around, it kind of changes everything around inside on us. But the Lord still gives us his strength, and so we're, it's good for us to gather in, a, in his presence in the house of the Lord. A couple of uh, family items. I received an email late last night from Elizabeth Garcia, the daughter of Phil Peterson, and she just, in bold letters, just said thank you for the cards and letters and words of encouragement that the family has received during this time. And so thank you for reaching out to this family. Continue to pray for them, but they're very grateful for how this church family gathered around them. And then the John Stanzik family wishes to announce that the memorial service in his honor will be held on March 26th at 10 a.m., in this room. So March 26th at 10 a.m. here, the memorial service for John Stanzik. Well, in the history of philosophy and religion, there has been much discussion about the nature of the virtuous life. Is the virtuous life the denial of desires, as some Eastern religions like Buddhism might say? Is it the satisfaction of all desires, as Greek philosophies like Epicureanism or the Playboy philosophy might say? Is it in self-care, as in the Gospel of Moi? Is it in the denial of physical reality, as in Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science? Is it in whatever works of pragmatism or utilitarianism? Or is the virtuous life found in something or service of something greater than ourselves? And if it is in service of something greater than ourselves, what would that something greater be? And so it is that lecture halls are filled and books are written and co conferences are held and documentaries are filmed and debates are held all about the quest for the virtuous life. But in the midst of this cacophony of contradictory voices that sound out in all different ways and in all different areas of our culture, there is one voice that rises above the rest. It is the voice of the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. The voice of the one who is called the Word who became flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to live among us to show us what God is like so that men, rebellious and sinful against God, might return to a right relationship with him. Jesus Christ is not only the one who taught about the meaning of life, he came to be life. He came as the life, the resurrection and the life, and the one through whom we can have eternal life. And all throughout his ministry, he said, blessed is the one who heeds his voice and walks in his ways. And so we who have had the privilege of encountering Jesus Christ, how blessed we are. But then as part of that blessedness, he continues to instruct us in how we are to walk in his ways as our master and our king and our Lord and our savior. Well, he has not left us alone in the determination of how to live out the life worth living. We know that he not only lived out the perfect life that alone can please God, he also taught his followers what it is to live as his people in this new community of believers that he is forming around the new covenant. 
And so today, as we continue in our study in the gospel according to Matthew, we come to chapter 5, where perhaps the most famous sermon in the history of Christianity begins, the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the next several weeks, we will spend some time at the feet of Jesus, following in the model of the, of the disciples, as we will see shortly, and listen to him as he lays out in detail what kingdom life looks like. And so as it is our prayer each week, we ask that the Lord would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace and hands to be quick to apply. Well, we've had a busy service already this morning. It's been good to hear the family news and what is going on. But I invite you to stand one more time as we read our passage for this morning and then dive in as we begin this wonderful sermon. This morning we'll be reading Matthew 5, the first six verses. And the truthful and beautiful word of God says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we now need to pay attention to what you have for us. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, about whom we hope to learn so much more this morning. And would you guide us by your spirit that we would have a deeper understanding and affection for who he is and empowered to walk in his ways. So guide us in this holy moment as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, since this is the beginning of a long look at this wonderful sermon, we're going to take a little time this morning to establish the background, the context, the big picture of what is happening that will help us in the weeks to come as we move through this passage. And so we see our first major point this morning, go tell it on the mountain. Now, last week we saw that there was a distinction between those that Jesus called to himself, the disciples, and the crowds. The disciples are those that Jesus has called and they will follow him to the end and they will carry on his message after he ascends back to heaven. Whereas the crowds are those looky-loops who just come for his show, but not necessarily to listen and to apply and to repent and to follow Jesus. And we'll see all throughout the Gospel of Matthew that there are these three main groups. There are the, the disciples that Jesus is teaching and instructing There are the crowds who come out of curiosity, and then there are the religious leaders. And we learn more about these three groups that add color and texture to the story of the Messiah. Well, in this next section of the Gospel of Matthew that we're entering into, the main focus of Jesus is going to be on the disciples and how to teach them how to live in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven has now come and that they are citizens of a new community a new believing community. And although he will be instructing the disciples, Jesus always has an eye on the crowds because he knows that they are listening as well to all that he is saying. And he also knows that there will be some in the crowds who will eventually become his own disciples and followers. And we will see that as the gospel unfolds. 
But we also will learn that as we move through the Gospels, that we are to beware of the crowds. In the Gospel, they start out being positive for the most part and enthusiastic towards Jesus, though not uniformly. But over the course of his ministry, and certainly at the end, they turn more and more against him. And in this battle with the disciples on one side and the religious leaders on the other, tugging and pulling against the crowds, it is eventual at the end that the crowds are turned by the influence of the religious leaders against the Lord. Well, that is a brief introduction. Let's continue to examine what is happening in the historical context here. And first we see the place. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. We know that Jesus often taught crowds and ministered to them in various ways, but at times he needed to withdraw from the crowds to have more personal instruction time with the disciples. And this is one of those times. He wants to differentiate at times between his disciples and the merely curious. And oftentimes we see in the Gospel of Matthew that this disciple Crowd distinction is often one just of believers and unbelievers, not yet believers. And Jesus is raising up disciples who will not only follow him, but will live for him and proclaim for him. And as history tells us, many are willing to die for him. And so he's not so interested in gathering crowds as he is in making disciples. Which, of course, was the final charge that he gave to the church. Go and make disciples of all the people groups which is the proper interpretation of the word ethnoi, commonly called Nathans. Now, the mountain that he went up on is not mentioned. Tradition says that there is a place on the ridge of Mount Tabra to the west of Capernaum, sometimes called today Mount Aramis, and the tradition has it as the Mount of the Beatitudes, but it really doesn't matter actually what mountain he went up on. It doesn't affect the truth of his teaching. But going up on a mountain is no accident. In the Gospel of Matthew, in fact, all throughout scriptures, it is often the case that important things happen on a mountain. We've already seen that one of the main temptations of Jesus happened on a mountaintop. Later on, we'll see that the transfiguration of Jesus happens on a mountaintop. He will climb up a mountain and he will give the warnings about the eventual destruction of the city of Jerusalem, about what to look for before his glorious return. He will ascend to the heavens from a mountain. And so here we find Jesus climbing a mountain to deliver an important sermon, following in a pattern that was established by many of the men of God of old. Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law. Moses climbs a mountain and looks out over the promised land. Elijah climbs a mountain and has a confrontation with the false teachers of Baal and Asherah. And so Jesus, as the ultimate prophet, as the fulfillment of the prophets, following in the patterns of the prophets, climbs a mountain where he will teach his followers the proper understanding of the word of God. He will teach what kingdom living looks like in light of the fact that he has come as the Messiah, the Savior. After the place, we see the posture. He went up on the mountain and he sat down. Now, Jesus did not sit down because it was a strenuous climb to get to the top, and he just needed a moment to rest. No, he sat down because that was the position that the teacher would take in those days. 
Today, we might have the teacher or the preacher stand in order to begin to speak, but in those days, it was common for the Jewish rabbis to sit down as they began to teach. And we see an example of that in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he is invited to teach, uh, read from the scriptures, and he stands to read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61. He reads the passage that talks about the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah of God. And we are told that he sits down. And when he sits down, the text says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Because now it was teaching time. Now was the time to expositate, to interpret, to understand what the word was saying. And he started by amazing the crowd at at that time by saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, in essence, I am the Messiah, the promised one of God, the Spirit is upon me. So here Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he sits down. And think of all that has happened as he is retracing the history of Israel. He has gone through the waters. He has come out of the waters. He has gone into the wilderness and faced the temptations of the wilderness for 40 days, where he succeeded. And he's going to lead the people in a new exodus, one that will free them from sin and death. And now he climbs a mountain to begin to teach. And the language that he went up on the mountain is the same that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 19, where Moses climbed the mountain. So here Jesus, like a new and better Moses, the fulfillment of all that Moses said, now climbs the mountain to teach his disciples how to live out the new covenant that he is bringing about. As we see the place and we see the posture, then we see the people. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And this is the first time we see the use of that word disciple in the Gospel of Matthew. It will be used dozens of times after this. But a disciple is a learner and a student. And one who follows after Jesus. And it's important for us to understand that as we look at the Gospels, there is no difference between a believer and a disciple. They are used synonymously all throughout the four Gospels, contrary to some misguided teaching today, which wants to form them into two classes. There's are the disciples, these believers, these initial learners, these called students. They are the ones that he is called to follow him. They are the ones that he will teach. They are the ones that he came to save and redeem. They are the ones now he will now instruct and lead in how to live this new kingdom life. And so he climbs a mountain. And just as Moses of old climbed a mountain to teach the law, telling the people of Israel after they had been redeemed out of the bondage of slavery, now Jesus climbs the mountain and he teaches the disciples that he is redeeming out of sin and how they are to live in light of the new covenant. And so over the course of three chapters, he will cover many subjects that get right to the heart of the matter that will affect his disciples' head, heart, and hands completely in their being about what it is to live now this new kingdom life. And so we have seen as an introduction, our first major point, go tell it on the mountain. And now he begins this famous sermon as speaking of the blessed in God. But for us to understand what we will see over the next several weeks and over the next three chapters in this book, we need to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is and what it is not. 
The Sermon on the Mount is not teaching on how to earn God's favor. It is not a list of the efforts required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven or a list of good works to be performed in order to be saved. It is not a mandate for social change that will bring in the gospel or bring in the kingdom of heaven through our own efforts as the social gospel often claims. No, it's far more important than those things. The Sermon on the Mount is a declaration that the kingdom is here, that the king has come. And it is God's instruction manual of how we are to walk in his ways. It is Jesus' messianic manifesto showing the proper way to understand the Old Testament and the prophets and how to live out as citizens of this new covenant. And so it is for those who have entered the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ that this is how they will live. Because the Spirit has come upon them, because they have the favor of God, these are the things that they will do. It is not to earn the favor of God. And so the text begins and says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now there's more to this than just meets the eye. This is not just a physiological fact. Of course he had to open his mouth if he was to teach them, but this was a prophetic expression among the Jews. It was often used when a prophet was to speak a message of God and said, and then he opened his mouth. And there are several examples all throughout the Old Testament. And we'll see some even later in Matthew. And so here, throbbing with prophetic expectation, he's climbed a mountain. He is now opening his mouth to speak with divine authority. And as he speaks with divine authority, I think we do well to listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, when Jesus opens his mouth, let us open our ears and our hearts. The teachings of Jesus are given in the forms of wisdom sayings. And in, in pithy form, he gives sharp, direct, challenging statements of truth that challenged his leaders, or his listeners of that day, challenges listeners today, challenges us as we understand the context in which they are given and often leaves us reflecting on what exactly it means and how do we live that out today. But at the same time, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is the grace of God just permeating and pulsating and empowering all that is going on in this teaching. Now, we try at times to lay the gospel side by side and see how they all fit together and you'll notice that there are some similarities between what Jesus says here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 and what is recorded in Luke chapter 6. But there are also major differences as well. In this sermon we have Jesus giving many blessed are those, blessed are those. But in Luke we have blessed are those and woe to those. We don't see that recorded in Matthew. And I think the reason why is simply that Jesus was an itinerant preacher. That means he moved from place to place to place to place, often teaching the same thing in different contexts. And so what we have here is something that Jesus said on a particular occasion and probably repeated on several other occasions as well. And so we want to hear then what is it that Jesus has to say for, to us. Commonly we call these first few verses in this wonderful sermon, the Beatitudes. 
The reason why we call them the Beatitudes is because in the Latin translation of the New Testament, it comes from the Latin word beati, which is the first word in every sentence in Latin. And so we call it the Beatitudes because of that, that history. But what does this word mean? It helps if we look at the Greek word, which is the word that we would have in the original New Testament, and it is makarios. But there's some discussion about how to understand makarios, because in many contexts it means happy. But in the way that language is changed in the English language, happy is too light of a term to cover all that makarios means. Because Jesus, when he is talking about what is what's going on in these verses and we translate it as blessed or it is the word makarios he's not just referring to an emotional status i feel happy it's referring to a position of blessedness before god because of his grace to experience makarios is to be in a position of divine favor sometimes it's used in the context of commendation or congratulation and so we do well to translate it by the word blessed. The idea that we are in this state of blessedness, of privilege, of divine favor because of God. And this idea of blessedness is not just a New Testament idea. It is found in many places in the Old Testament as well. <clears throat> Most of us have memorized Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. David talks about being forgiven in Psalm 32 and says, Blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. So there's this idea of the blessed favor of God upon us is behind this word makarios. And it really is behind then this blessing that we often give at the end of our church service from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It is because God has shown favor to his people that we can pray in such a way and recognize that ultimately it all goes back to him. So as we think of this word, makarios, and if we take the word happy, let's redeem it and say that true happiness then comes from walking with the Lord. And doing all that he has commanded for his glory with the blessings that come with it as we do things his way. Well, there are eight such sayings in the Beatitudes. Eight statements of the blessedness of God that for, on his people for what he has done in Christ. And if you notice, the first and the eighth one have this thing at the end, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. The focus is on the kingdom as a present reality right now. The others carry the idea of the present kingdom now, but also going on in the future, for they shall. And that makes sense. We understand then that the kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ. It has come in part. It is very real in its presence, but we have not yet seen the full manifestation of all the blessings of the kingdom of God. And so we live in that point of tension between the now and the not yet. There are very real blessings that we can experience now, but we await the fullness when Jesus Christ returns. Today in our time in the word, we're going to look at the first four. 
of these Beatitudes because they describe clearly the, the relationship that believers have with God. And then next week we'll look at the other four that look at implications and how we live out that relationship with God because of these expressions of makarios. And so the first one that we see then is poverty and true riches. Now we may expect that Jesus would give virtues that show strength and power. Instead, Jesus is going to spend some time on the first three Beatitudes describing weakness and neediness. He wants to make it clear from the beginning that the gospel works differently than the ways of the world. It's a reminder from the beginning that the strength of the believer is never found in himself, never found in his efforts, never found in his intentions. The strength for ministry is always found in the work and the power and the grace of the goodness of the Lord. And so what Jesus is giving here are kingdom of heaven values. And kingdom of heaven values often go against the values of the kingdoms of men. And so he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who know that they are needy sinners in need of forgiveness before a holy God who cannot help themselves. They are not poor because of a timid personality. They are poor because they know of their spiritual inability and are trusting in the ability of God and his power for all things. In their recent book on the theology of missions, Kostenberger and O'Brien state that the poor to whom the good news is announced are not to be understood narrowly of the economically destitute as some recent scholars have suggested. Rather, the term refers more generally to the excluded, the dispossessed, the outcast who are forced to depend upon God. And so the focus that Jesus gives here on the poor is not on the lack of material possessions. It is on the lack of spiritual ability. The poor in spirit recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, they acknowledge their dependency on God, knowing that he will respond to their pleas. We read one of the verses in our invocation today that uses that same idea, Proverbs 30, uh, Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. It was to such as these that Jesus came when he read on that morning in Capernaum in the synagogue, from Isaiah chapter 61, it said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor in spirit consider themselves of no account before a holy God. They know that they are completely dependent upon God. But if they are dependent upon God and his grace and his mercy and his peace and his truth, they know that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be accounted as righteous before God in the holy room of heaven. And there will be no boasting in the kingdom of heaven. There will be no, I did this, or I did that before God. It'll simply be, God did it all. May his name be praised. Now, a word about how we view the poor in general, because there's so much confusion and widespread teaching on all of these issues. We, there are two general errors that we need to avoid. 
when we talk about material possessions. The first is that somehow by nature, the materially poor are inherently more spiritual than those who are not poor. But my friends, the issue is of the heart, not of the stuff one has or doesn't have. A, a materially poor person can be just as materialistic as a sinful rich person, always thinking about stuff. And then when we realize that even in the Bible, it gives many reasons for why there are poor people, it helps us to understand how we respond in the different circumstances. One of the reasons why someone might be poor is because of his own laziness and sinful choices. And then th that person cannot be considered in a state of blessedness. No, they are to take responsibility for their situation. They are to repent, take st steps to change, get help, get out of that situation. That's one category of those that are poor in the Bible. Their own sin, their own selfishness, their own foolishness, their own bad behavior. But there are those that are poor because of a natural disaster. We heard about that during our ministry time this morning. There are those that are poor because of the evil of someone else. Someone who has lost everything because of a hurricane or a fire or a flood. Someone who suffers because of an evil government, because of war, because of corruption of those ruling over them. They are poor because evil has been inflicted upon them in one way or the other, either naturally or by the hands of men. And they are the ones then that we are called to help. We are called to minister. There are those that become poor because of an accident, because of physical infirmity, because of a family tragedy. And in those situations, then, we are called to the extent that we can to alleviate suffering. But in any case, this is the first error we have to avoid, that somehow the poor are inherently more spiritual than those who are not poor. But there is another error on the other side that we have to avoid, and that is that somehow possessions and money are a sign of godliness and blessedness from the Lord. Now, of course, we rightly reject outright the prosperity gospel that promises all kind of riches and wealth and power and positions and clothes and after all we're children of the king and so we should live like the king and we should drive the chariot of the king rubbish so go back to the pit of hell from which you came but we also have to beware my friends of not embracing a form of soft prosperity that seeps into many evangelical circles it goes something like this lord i've been faithful in this church for so many years i did all these ministries and i did that such and so i don't deserve cancer i don't deserve to have trouble in my family i deserve an easy and peaceful life lord you owe me i don't think any of us would ever be so brash that we would say it that way to the lord but oftentimes we think it, that somehow we merit something from God. And so we have to avoid both of these errors. One that somehow the materially poor are inherently more spiritual, but that somehow to have money is a sign that you have God's favor. Now why, why do I spend so much time underlining that? It's because verses like Matthew 5, verse 3, and others that are used in the scriptures are often used to promote false teaching. 
Those who are poor in spirit are those who know they cannot save themselves, that they are helpless before the holy judgment of God, and that it is only by the mercy and grace that they are saved. Those that are poor in spirit believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, and that it is in him alone that we can be saved. Their motto, because they understand who they are and who God is, is in the words of the old hymn, In my hand, no Christ I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. The joy that the poor in spirit have is that by faith they enter into the kingdom of heaven, experience the full forgiveness we have in Christ, have the in spirit and dwelling within them, join the covenant community of new believers and experience hope, not only of walking with the Lord now, but of reigning with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that your hope this morning? Are you poor in spirit? recognizing your spiritual poverty before a holy God and crying out to him and say, oh God, have mercy on me. I bring you nothing except my sin that requires your salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, we see sadness and security. Now in the context of kingdom living, there is grief over sin. But this next verse offers comfort and hope to the ones struggling with guilt and shame. For Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are those who are grieving over their sin. They see the holiness of God. They grieve over their lack of righteousness. They know that they need God. And that God will be merciful to them. If we were to simply translate this verse as happy are those who mourn, it would be silly unless there is a greater context. And what is the greater context here? That Jesus said, I have come to save my people from their sins. The mourning that is referred to here is referring to the kingdom values of God. It's mourning over sin, over its effects. It mourns over the sin of the individual of the alienation, because of the frustration, because of the loneliness, the separation it brings. It mourns over sin in the life of another believer because sin brings punishment, pain, and when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. That's why we long to see fellow brothers caught in sin be brought to a place of restoration. It mourns over the effects of sin and creation and culture. And Paul puts words to this in Romans 8 when he talks about how we mourn over our own sin and we groan and the Holy Spirit groans that we would become more in accordance with the will of God in our prayers and creation itself is groaning because it's not yet what it's going to be. The one who mourns understands the cry of the psalmist who said, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And this is the type of mourning that is given by God. And as we mourn in the Lord, the good news of the gospel is that it heals the wounded soul. It forgives the guilty sinner. It restores and rebuilds and reconciles. It stirs up movements to end injustice. It gives hope that all wickedness will be done away with one day. It's the type of comfort in the midst of mourning that was offered in Isaiah chapter 40. After God had said, I'm going to send my people off 
into rebellion because of their sin, and they're going to be in exile. And chapter 40 starts with comfort, comfort my people in the context of the new covenant that will bring forgiveness of sin. And this is comfort that is brought to those who mourn over their sin, who repent and turn away, and they recognize that this is a divine work of God, not a human work that we can operate. As we draw close to the Lord, recognizing that we deserve His wrath, but we can receive His grace and mercy, we experience His peace. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he said, for since we have been justified by faith, we are at peace with God. We are comforted. But we still experience, do we not, this period of pain and grief and mourning because we're not yet all that we're going to be. We're still in between that now and not yet. And so it becomes good news then as we read in the book of Revelation, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Have you mourned over your sin and the pain that it has caused to you and your family and your work and your reputation and your testimony? And cried out to the Lord, who is so lavish in his grace and mercy. It's not too late. It's only too late when you don't have another breath to draw. Thirdly, we see service and inheritance. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And we must not confuse meekness with weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Strength that is guided for good and godly purposes. And we see here the fulfillment of the promise of the psalmist. He said, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is not... The lie of the devil seen in the garden or seen in the wilderness with Jesus. Just serve the devil and inherit the world. No, this is something greater. Inheriting a renewed creation where the fullness of the gospel has been applied. And all that was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. Who is the ultimate heir of all things. Psalm chapter 2 says that the Messiah is spoken to by God the Father. He says, ask of me. And I will give you the, the nations as your inheritance. And we know that that's what Christ came to redeem and to inherit. And then the beauty of the gospel is we will reign with him over the new heavens and the new earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. And so meekness is the opposite of arrogance or oppression or bullying or seeking one's own glory or the attention of others. Meekness is strength that is guided and channeled to seek the well-being of others. It doesn't seek its own sake, but it seeks the blessing and benefit of others. Do we not see that in the Lord Jesus Christ who personified meekness? The eternal Son of God, through whom all things were created, who upholds all things by the word of his power, used his strength under restraint to come and live among us to advance the kingdom of heaven and to obey the Father's will all the way to the cross. And therefore, he's now exalted. And it's that same Jesus who holds out his hand and says that he is meek and lowly in heart. So come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Right? Meekness. Strength under control that accomplishes godly purposes. I think I first came across this idea in the 1980s from the simple Maranatha praise chorus that said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And lastly, in, in our search today, we see searching and sanctification. Searching and sanctification. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To those that have ever spent any time living in the wilderness or away from water, they understand the thirst that comes or the hunger that comes from meals that have been missed. In the course of our years of ministry, the Lord sent us to the, just the edge of the Sahara Desert for about six and a half years, to the edge of the Arabian Desert for about 16 years. We had in brief experiences of what it meant to thirst and how good water would be. That's the hunger that Jesus is talking about here. That's the thirst that Jesus is talking about here. Does your soul thirst and hunger for the things of God? Or are you too simply satisfied with the things of this world? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the righteousness, this behavior that is expected of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. It emphasizes that upright living that we're to have that marks the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom. We have been set apart for service and we grow in actual holiness and we call this sanctification where we become more and more like Christ. We understand if we're in Christ that God expects, even commands his children to grow in holiness. He places his Holy Spirit in us. He redeems us, and get that with that redemption, with that new heart, we now have new desires, desires we didn't have before, desires that we now have for the things of God, and we're hungry for the things of God. Does that mark our lives? In the use of our time, in the use of our talents, in the use of our treasures, and our calendars, and our checkbooks, and our priorities, do we show that we hunger and thirst for the things of God or is it always second place is it always just a little bit and we move on to the things we really want to do just this week the name Ernest Shackleford has come up in the news often I had already chosen him as an illustration but his name came up it's because a boat that he lost over a hundred years ago in his voyages around the Antarctic has finally been found but what is not mentioned, even in the account that I read this morning in the newspaper, well, online before I came, they didn't mention these important details from an earlier trip he had taken to the Antarctic. In the Antarctic summer of 1908-1909, he and three companions attempted to travel to the South Pole from their winter quarters. They set off with four ponies to carry the load. Weeks later, the ponies dead, Rations all but exhausted, they turned back toward their base, having not accomplished their goal. Altogether, they trekked 127 days. As Shuckleford records it in the book, The Heart of the Antarctic, he talks about that return journey, and he said, The time was spent talking about food, elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus. He says, as they staggered along, suffering from dysentery, not knowing whether they would survive, every waking hour was occupied with thoughts of eating. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In his temptation, he rebuked the devil by saying, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And until we find that we can only be satisfied in Christ, we will go off in endless searches, fruitless searches, trying to find satisfaction in one thing after another. But it will only be as we strive after the things of God, hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Pastor John Piper says, God is most glorified in us we are most satisfied in him. This personal righteousness is for each person who has entered into the kingdom of heaven. It is a righteousness that is beyond personal. It is social because it should impact the covenant community in which we are a member now in the church. It is transformational in that it transforms lives and will have an impact into the surrounding culture. And Jesus will talk about that as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. But even that righteousness that we strive after is produced only by his strength, by his indwelling spirit, by his enabling grace, and because we already have the favor of God in Christ, not because we seek to earn his favor. So go, tell it on the mountain. That those who repent and believe can be blessed in God. And it's all because of Jesus, who is the ultimate poor in spirit, who depended upon the Father completely and fully throughout the whole of his human life. We can go and tell it on the mountain and we can be blessed in God because Jesus was the ultimate man of sorrows. Who knew the true meaning of mourning because he bore our sins and our griefs and our failures and our guilt and our shame, and he bore it to the cross. And as he looked out, and we'll see this later in Matthew, and he looked out at those that were lost in their sin, he said he mourned because the people were like sheep without a shepherd, and enters into the grief. He's the ultimate man of meekness, who will inherit all creation because he put all of his strength channeled towards good and godly purposes, and he will rule forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And he came to fulfill all righteousness. Therefore, he is able to empower us to live out his righteous commands today. These first four beatitudes that we've looked at, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They deal with our relationship with God. And what God has done in us because of Christ, how we're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And his favor is upon us. And this vertical blessing that we have in our relationship with God will translate itself into horizontal impact. And in that image, then, we see the full impact of the cross and what Jesus came to do. I commend these four Beatitudes to you this week and Next week, we'll look at the last four as we move through this important sermon. But what are some lessons we can take with us through the week? Because Jesus modeled complete trust in the Father, he empowers us to trust him and to be truly poor in spirit. 
or trusting. Because Jesus mourned over the loss, he works in us to mourn over our sin and over injustice that sin brings. So we should mourn over sin and injustice. Because Jesus was meek and lowly in heart, he moves us to be meek in our own attitude and action towards others. So consider others better than yourself. And because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, he works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, according to Philippians 2.13. So work hard in his strength towards his good purposes. I pray that this week, as you reflect again upon these Beatitudes, you will allow the Spirit of God to speak to you through these words. Take some time, quietly, to reflect on them to take, analyze your current situation and ask what he would have you do. Let us pray. Father, as we turn to you now in these holy moments, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the wonder of a savior. We thank you for the hope of eternal life. And now we thank you as well for the wisdom that we need to understand and apply. So God, work in us. Teach us, guide us for your great glory and for our ultimate good as we pray in Jesus' name.